What's going on, everybody? I'm Ra. And I'm Tez. And welcome back to Sisters Who Kill. So, is responsibility just owning up to the fact that you did something wrong? Or does responsibility also mean accepting the consequences that come with it? If you're listening to this, you probably already know what I'm about to say, that today is the day for you to start your podcast. You have everything that you need, your computer, a little microphone, and Spotify for podcasters. It is the all-in-one platform where you can host, edit, and record your podcast and distribute it everywhere. Where you're listening right now, you can have your podcast there. I promise, for real. And it's free. And you can make some money off of your podcast for free. Free money. Free money is out there. Just go get it by starting your podcast today. Our players this week are Gregory Biggs, the victim, Cleet Daniil Jackson, the accomplice, Herbert Tyrone Cleveland, the accomplice of the accomplice, Titalisi T. Fry, the friend, and Shantae Jawan Mallard, our murderess. Shantae was born on June 22, 1976 in Fort Worth, Texas to James and Dorothy Mallard. James had a good paying job. He worked for a trucking company in Fort Worth and her mom stayed home and took care of all the kids and took care of the house. Now Shantae was the youngest of three and not only was she the youngest but she was the only girl so she was the baby girl. She was spoiled as fuck. She had two older brothers, Marcus who was seven years older than her and then James Jr. who was 12 years older than she was. James Jr. actually grew up and became a firefighter. They were considered our family was considered like upper middle class Shantae grew up in the north side of Fort Worth Texas and when she was eight her and her family moved to South Fort Worth Texas near the Morningside area we're not from Texas but we heard that's a good area so if it's not I'm sure that y'all will tell us on the internet her family they were very religious you know they loved to go to church they was church going folks they went to Shiloh Missionary Baptist Church in Fort Worth Texas and they were a family of why musicians. is there always like, a Shiloh Missionary Baptist anywhere you go Oh, there's always going to be a Shiloh. There's going to be a Shiloh. There's going to be a Mount Carmel. There's going to be a um, Ebenezer. There's going to be a um, a new chapel. And then whatever street you on, there's going to be one named after whatever street you're standing on. Mm-hmm. So at their church, they were very musically inclined. Um, Dorothy, mom, would sing. James, you know, the dad, he played the alto sax. And Shantae, she played the piano. She played the alto sax like our daddy did. And she also played the baritone. She was a complete daddy's girl. She loved her music. They even had a piano in the house that she practiced on all the time. I hated the baritone. Did you really? Yes. I never played any of that but the piano. I... That was like my major in middle school because I went to the performing arts school. You had majors and minors, and my major was piano, so I learned it for a while. Wow. You learn something every day, don't you? Yeah. You know, I try. (laughs) Is that what you got assigned in band or something? Yes. I was like, I'm going to join band, and I'm going to learn how to play drums. And he was like, you look like a baritone. And I was like, no, I don't. (laughs) Never really got far. 
I just um, I, put my I mouth on the instrument when everybody well. else played. Thank you, right? <laughs> Don't give up on your dreams. <laughs> when she was in school, she was pretty well known. She had lots of friends. In middle school and high school, she joined the marching band. She played volleyball. She was really great at it. And she was such a good student that she actually graduated high school in December of the year that she was supposed to graduate. So she was supposed to graduate in June of 95, but she actually graduated in December of 94 because... She was just that good, I guess. And while she had a whole semester off of high school, she got herself a job at Burger King and at IHOP. And she was taking extra classes on the side because she was getting ready to go to college. My first job was at uh, Burger King. My first job was at the Y. They made sure that the kids were saving, right? Like, they were the type of family that was like, I am giving you everything you need as the parents. You, you are being provided for. You know, there's a roof. There's clothes. There's shelter. All the things that you need. So all the money, they were teaching them how to save. They weren't really teaching them how to spend money that well, but they were teaching them how to save. So all of the Mallard children had savings accounts before they left the household. Of course, they gave their 10% every Sunday. Also, while their parents were trying to teach their ways of financial responsibility, every time that the Mallard parents got their refund check from the government at the top of each year, they would, like, give some of their refund check to the children. No. <laughs> right. You don't have to work for yours the same way I had to work for mine. When Shantae was working that entire year, her parents were like, you don't need to be spending any of that money, just save it. I mean, with your kids, they automatically pretty much have it, right? But I wouldn't be like, here, Timmy, here's a band. You right. know what I'm saying? No, right. Timmy, you're going to reap make the sure benefits that- of it, but, like, giving you money? Di- no. Don't you have three hots in a cot? <laughs> <laughs> Somebody's going to be like, don't ever give her children. (laughs) So after graduating early from high school, working hard, saving her money, she applied for Prairie View A&M University. Shantae was... Shout out to the HBCUs. You just have like a running list in your head? Yeah. I mean, I know I, I can name most of them right off the bat. Not off the bat, but like when I hear them, I know what they are. Not all of them. I'll be missing some. There's there's over a hundred, so. Right. You know, I also was an HBCU queen, so I've interacted with a lot of the other HBCU queens from the school. That makes sense. So, Shantae, she's very excited to go to college. She's excited about this freedom she's about to get. You know, she's going to learn, but she's going to get new friends. She's going to get some boys. She's going to go to the parties. Like, what every kid is excited about for going to college, right? She's moving on. She's growing up. So, she moves on to campus and just gets into freshman life. You're going to classes. You're meeting new people. She also started doing some new activities, you know, smoking weed, drinking, but she did admit she's more of a smoker than a drinker. <laughs> can relate. So things are going good at A&M, but it doesn't last long. After her first semester, she flunks out and moves back home with her parent, which my mama would have had some words for me. Because how you go from graduating high school early to flunking out your first semester, that tells me that you didn't try. You want to play with my money like that? No. I didn't have that option, but I don't. I can't imagine. Right. I just, no. Just to come so high and fall so low. Because I just feel like if you're good at school, then it was just like you not managing your priorities correctly. Mm-hmm. She goes home. She moves back in with her parents. And she was like, listen, ain't nobody trying to be working at Burger King for the rest of their life. But also, ain't really trying to see A&M right now either. So I'm just going to go and get my CNA and become a certified nursing assistant. That's how I'll make my money. So 
She was a friend from the neighborhood that she grew up in. They had became CNAs also. She talked to them. They were making good money. They was like, don't need a degree, girl. Just do this course. Get your certification. You in there. So she was like, yeah, this is for sure the life I'm going to, or this is for sure the path I'm going to take. So she gets her certification, and she's hired at Broadway Plaza Healthcare Center, a nursing home in Fort Worth, Texas. She would work until they got a good, And they got a good band at Prairie View. She must have not been in the band. She must have not been in any extracurriculars because I feel like extracurriculars would keep you focused, right? That's what I'm saying. Like, when you get involved on campus, instead of just, like, drinking and fucking around, Mm -hmm. y'all that's going to college this fall, people that are freshman year of college, parents that you're sending your kids off to college, y'all get involved in something. Even if it's, like, the modeling troupe, the debate team, the fuck. I played intramural soccer and intramural flag football it's just being around people that also have that same mindset because especially at hbcus and anybody that goes to an hbcu can attest to this there's plenty of niggas on campus that don't go there that just looking for some trouble and look just looking to have a good time so you need to make sure you go around the right people because college is a good time no matter where it is but mm-hmm. it's all about how you do it mm-hmm. um that's my spill on that so she was working but she also like had time to spend with her family now and she could save money so then in 1997 Shantae had saved up enough money to buy her this cute little yellow house for ten thousand dollars she saved up eight thousand and her parents gave her the remaining two so that she could pay cash and not have a mortgage must be nice after moving into the house it needed a few repairs done and shantae paid for that by herself when shantae moved into her house she was 19 years old no mortgage but a place of her own she moved to a different nursing home and started making friends with her co-worker but she went out to get her hair done one day and ended up clicking with her hairstylist and they became like best friends and her hairstylist also was not only a hairstylist but she was also a cna a lot in common they clicked real fast now this new friend Talisi, she goes by T, right? So T and Shantae, who went by Tay, think of Steve's. These two girls would hang out after work. They go clubbing, go to the beach, drink, smoke. You know, they're young, right? Mm-hmm. This is common early to mid twenty activities that they're doing here. You know, life's a blast at this point. T had just finished going through a divorce. And she's really looking to, like, cut cut loose. And I bet, like, that young having a divorce, I'm sure she wants to act the fuck up, right? So, around 1999, you know, right before the world was supposed to end, that's when they really cemented their friendship and got close. Shantae's 23 at the time, and T and Tay, they're so close, of course, they shared other friends. One of them being Miranda Daniels, and they would go to work during the day, and they party all night. After getting deep in this friendship with T, Shantae is seeing less and less of her family. And they're getting worried about her, you know, concerned that she's hanging out with the wrong crowd and she's not, you know, working towards her future and all that stuff. So that summer, Shantae's family had a picnic slash family reunion type thing. And Shantae brings T with her. So they pull up to the family picnic smelling like weed. They dress like little hoochie mamas. And her mom, Dorothy, says, absolutely not. Y'all need to go and go put some clothes on. So the girl's just like, you know what? Seems like this is not a place where I should be. So they don't stay long. And later that day, Dorothy calls Shantae and she was like, listen, Mm-mm. I don't want you hanging out with T no more. She's not good for you, and you need to let that go before she take you down the wrong path, right? And uh, Shantae was like, Mom, you tripping. This is my best friend. I'm not about to just stop talking to her, right? Crazy. Right. 
So when 2001 began, Shantae was uh, not really holding out a job. She was kind of going from nursing home to nursing home. She had taken out a mortgage on her house. And she did that because she had got behind in her credit card bills and she needed a car so that she could go to work. So now she went from not having a mortgage to now having a mortgage. When she couldn't make the payments, she would just call her parents when she got really, 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 really behind and they would help her out. Like like we said, not only is she the baby, but she was a baby girl. So this was something that was easy for her to do. I think about me and how hard it is for me to ask for help. And but. I ain't nobody's baby or baby girl, so... And it's not like she was, like, asking for help at every turn. Like, she'd let herself fall before asking, you know, just out of not wanting to disappoint her parents and be like, I need help again. But she did have somebody to rely on. Yeah, she definitely did it. So one time, Shantae, her utilities got turned off. She didn't pay her utilities bill. She was already behind on her mortgage. And so since she had no water, no air, no heat, she stayed at a friend's house. And her friend had a husband at the time, and they was like, what are you going to do, girl? She was like, oh, you know, I think I'm going to rent my house out. Um, And once I rent it out, like, if I rent it really high, you know, I can make some money, pay off some of these debts. And they was like, girl, you need to just ask your parents. Like, I'm sure if you ask them and you let them know that you're behind, like, they'll help you out. And, of course, they did. So she was back in her own home. And although they were helping her with her home when she needed it, she was really talking to them. She wasn't really spending time with them. She was really only hitting them up when she needed something. Around this time, she had started messing with a man named Terrence. Now, they were on again, off again for a while. But while they were off in this particular time that I'm talking about, one of many, so don't even try to keep up, just one of the times that they were off, she started messing around with another guy. Now, the other guy she was messing with, his name was Cleet Daniil Jackson. Everybody called him Vaughn. Now, Vaughn and Shantae... Or so they say. <laughs> or so they say, because Vaughn say... Yeah, Vaughn say he ain't never go by a name Vaughn, but it's still him. So, we gonna... I don't know what to tell you. But Cleet, Vaughn, they're the same people in the story. So, they actually met a gas station in uh, 1999, the two of them. And they were, like, you know, fucking around for a little bit. They was, you know, canoodling for a little while. Then, Clee had gone to jail for aggravated robbery. And he went to prison for two years. He comes out. He's on probation. He, you know, already has kids. And he's trying to get his life back on track. He's trying to do the right thing. You know, that two-year bid change, nigga. You know, you don't want to go back for any longer. And she knew that. Shantae and they started messing around a little bit just here and there whenever they wanted to but you know nothing real serious so two months have passed and it's now October 25th 2001 it's a typical Thursday night for T and Shantae T when she got up that morning she worked from 7 in the morning to 3 p.m. now Shantae she worked from 2 p.m. to 10 p.m. and they had plans that night they were going to Joe's Bamboo Club in Arlington, Texas. And not only were they just going to Joe's Bamboo just because it was Thirsty Thursday. Joe's Bamboo had probably the best Thirsty Thursday special I've ever heard of. 69 cent drinks. It was Vaughn's cousin's birthday. And so she already knew that Vaughn was going to be there. And it was like a group of like 10 to 12 guys because it was his cousin's birthday. Girl, let's get up. Let's get dressed up. Let's Go see what these niggas think. Look at her hood niggas at, right? After Shantae got off of work at 10 p.m., she drove home. The car that she drove at the time was a 1997 gold Chevrolet Cavalier. When she got home, she showered. She put on some really quick clothes. and She brought the rest of her clothes over to T's house to finish, you know, getting ready. You know, put your clothes on, get your, get your attire ready, hair, makeup, all that good shit. When she got to T's house, she did this very quickly. So she got off of work, got home, took a shower, went to T's house by 11 o'clock. So very close vicinity everything is in. When she got there... 
Shantae started drinking gin and juice. T's like, oh, girl, I got this ecstasy pill. Let's split it. And Shantae is like, okay. T's like, I already took mine. I already chewed it. Go ahead and take yours. They split it. They chew it. They walk down to the car. On the way to the club, they finished their drink. They brought their drinks with them. And they also smoked a blunt on the way to the club. Now, when they got to Joe's Big Bamboo Club, they met up with Vaughn and his friends because they were already there. And they started drinking uh, 69 Cent Hurricanes. Almost immediately, Vaughn was like, something is off with Shantae. Uh, he could tell that she just wasn't looking. She was looking like she was really fucked up. But he was like, I see you only had a couple drinks like you just got here. And she was like... Oh, and so then he goes up to T and he's like, T, what's wrong with her? Why is she this fucked up? Like, she going crazy. And T's like, oh, I gave her an X pill. He's like, you gave her a fucking X pill. She's like, don't worry about it. She's fine. Bomb was like, Mm-mm. she looks like she's fucking trash. But Shantae was having a good time. T was having a good time. And Vaughn was like, whatever. He went on about his night. He actually took Shantae's keys from her. It was like. I don't know if you need to be having these keys right now. They had plans to go back together to do to do. But Vaughn found him somebody else to do to do with that night. So he gave Shantae's keys not back to Shantae. He gave the keys to somebody else because he still didn't want Shantae to have the keys. Gave her her keys, her wallet, all her belongings. He had it all on him because he thought he was going to fuck that night. He ended up fucking some, on something else. So Mariah's story started October 25th, 2001. So it's midnight now. So it's Friday, October 26th. And Vaughn just left the club. Or I'm going to call him. What's his name? Cleet. Cleet has Cleet. left the club. And Shantae and T are still dancing. They have about two, three drinks each. But Shantae's not feeling too good. She's a little uneasy. And she sure as hell wasn't feeling like herself. The club closed it too, but you know I like when the club closes, you're not quite ready to go home. So then the parking lot kind of moved to the party and you just sitting around the cars talking and shit, kicking mm-hmm. shit. So they were there until about 2.30, right? They finally get in the car. You remember Shantae drove. So Shantae gets in the driver's seat, T's in the passenger seat. Shantae starts to drive off and she's swerving. She almost hit a pole and T was like, stop, girl, stop. She didn't even go far. They said she went a few like five feet, feet and it was yeah. already fucked up. And she was like, mm-mm, switch. You don't need to be driving. T makes a 20-minute drive back to her apartment. When they get to her apartment, T has plans to go see a guy. So Shantae uses T's phone to call Terrence. Terrence doesn't pick up. So she gets out the car and she walks over to the driver's side. T's like, you good, girl? You sure you can drive home? Shantae says, yeah, I'm good. T watches her back out the driveway and says, I'm going to go upstairs to take a shower, right? Shantae's driving home, and she comes up on, like, this horseshoe-shaped turn. She's on US-287, and she's getting off at the East Loop 820, right? She's going about 55 miles an hour. She's drunk, high off weed, and ecstasy. Next thing you know, Shantae hears this loud sound. She feels glass splattering on her. She feels this huge gust of wind, and she looks over, and there is a man lodged in her windshield. Streaming October 6th on Paramount+. Plus. First place I learned about death was a pet cemetery. Dead things buried in that land. But come back. There's something else. Something's wrong with Timmy. He needs time to adjust. That's not Timmy. Something's talking through him. Sometimes dead is better. Pet Cemetery, Bloodlines, Rated R, streaming only on Paramount Plus. So 
she's panicked. She's continuing off this exit, and once she gets off, she's like at a stoplight or a red or stop sign or a stoplight or something. She stops the car. She gets out, and she is just looking at this man, damn near fully through her windshield. They said just a leg was sticking out at this point. He is like in her passenger floor under the dash. She reaches in and touches his leg and is immediately spooked. She's like, nope, can't do it. She just keeps panicking. She's crying. She gets back in the car and proceeds to drive home. She's like one mile from her exit. She's just like trying to hurry up and get home. She pulls up to her house. She opens up the garage door, drives in, closes the garage door. She is crying uncontrollably and then she hears a moan from the man he moaned in pain and she starts apologizing profusely oh my god i'm so so sorry i'm so 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 sorry i didn't mean to it was an accident i'm so 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 sorry over and over just telling her she didn't mean it and she also just kept saying lord just please help me help me lord help me lord she leaves the man in the car in the garage and goes inside the house She comes out periodically to check on him, and every time she does, she says, I'm so sorry, but doesn't go to touch him, doesn't come close. She just kind of looks, see if he's still there, see if he's still alive. I'm so sorry. I really didn't mean to. I'm so, so sorry. She laid on the kitchen floor and just cried like she has no idea what to do. So after a few minutes, she calls T using her house phone because she doesn't have a cell phone. And she was like, T, come pick me up. T's like, what happened? What's wrong? She was like, just hurry up and get over here. So T's a little concerned. She gets dressed and she goes straight to Shantae's house. She arrives at 3.50 a.m. or somewhere around there. She gets there and Shantae comes running Yelling at the house, just drive, just drive. She gets in the car. She was like, what you do, girl? Rob your own house? What's wrong with you? But she drove, like Shantae said. Shantae is just yelling, screaming, crying. She was like, take me to Terrence's house. Take me to Terrence's house. So T uses her phone. She does have a cell phone. She uses her phone to call Cleek. As she has T drive her to Terrence's house, she uses T's phone to call Cleek. She's calling Cleek. She's like, I really just need to talk to him. He doesn't answer. And we all know why, because he went home with another girl, okay? She calls him again and again and again, and then eventually he has, like, 20 missed calls from this girl. A few minutes later, they pull up to Terrence's house, but he wasn't there. So then they go to his sister's house. He wasn't there either. So it's like, girl, I'm about to keep driving all over the city looking for niggas. We're going back to your house. So, At fucking 3 o'clock in the morning. I mean, 3, 4 o'clock in the morning. On the way back to her house, Shantae is still crying, telling T she didn't mean to hit anyone, but she hit this white guy, and she tried to fix it, but she couldn't. And T is suddenly confused, and she was like, what the fuck is this girl talking about? Like, damn, she only took half a pill? T is confused. Like, this is Shantae's second time taking ecstasy, and the first time she took a whole pill and said she felt nothing. This time I only gave her half, and she wilding the fuck out. So she keeps driving. They head back to Shantae's house, and they both get out, and they go through the front door. T's wandering through the kitchen, like, what the fuck's going on, girl? She opens the garage, and she sees the man's feet, legs, and butt sticking out from the windshield. Mm-hmm. The windshield is cracked. 
There's blood, lots and lots of blood. She screams, shuts the door, and runs back into the living room with Shantae. Now, when she gets back into the living room, she's yelling at Shantae. Shantae is screaming and yelling and crying, freaking out. And T's like, I don't want nothing to do with this. Leaves, gets in her car, and Shantae follows right behind her because she don't want to have nothing to do with it either. Um, she cried all night and she was looking Girl. for Vaughn, but Vaughn, of course, did not answer the phone because Vaughn was tied up with Shorty for the club from the night before. When they finally got in touch, Shantae was like, I really need to talk to you. And he's like, what's going on? What's wrong? What's going on? And he ta- he said that, like, they talked all the time, you know, they confided in each other and shit or whatever. So when she when she's freaking out, he's like, what, what do you mean? What's going on? So he had the girl that he was staying with drop him off at his grandma house. And pretty much as soon as he got to his grandma house, Shantae pulled up in T's car. Because she needed to talk. They're in the car and Shantae is freaking out, still saying like something's wrong. And she's driving. You know, Clee is like, you know, you upset and all, but you also crying and driving. So he actually calls his homeboy. He's like, I don't know what's wrong with this girl. If anything happens to me, bro, I'm with Shantae. Like, if I get to an accident, if some shit happened, like, this is where I am. They pull up at the house and Shantae is like super hesitant to tell him what was going on. And finally, she's like, I got into an accident last night. And he knows that she... That she had been drinking. So his question was like, so the cops let you come home? I mean, they'll let Which you come home. Which I feel like is a fair question. DUI. Like, you don't have a DUI Just right now? There. You um, sober That up. wasn't long enough. That wasn't long enough. This is like 9 o'clock in the morning. And she, right, right, right. she left the club at 2, 2.30. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So she still wouldn't, wouldn't have been. She's, she's still, still not close to tank. sober. Yeah, she's still not close to sober. So... She's like, I got into an accident and she's like, I'm just, I'm in so much trouble. I'm in so much trouble. And he's like, okay, what happened? And so he goes into the car, he goes into the garage because she has her car in the garage and she's still not telling him what is in the garage by this time, uh, Biggs, the man that was hit he has slid through the entire windshield, and he is now, like, inside of the car. If the, it, It's the passenger side, but if it was the driver's side, his head would be at the foot pedals, and he's, like, stacked that way. Like, he slid in through that way, but he's on the passenger side, everybody. So, Cleet sees the car. He sees the damage. He's like, what did you hit? And she's crying, and she's freaking out, and she can't get any words out. He's like, what is going on? And, like, when you see the car, the upper right side of the of the front window is bent in so like the window is still in place the window is still like it's not shattered but clearly something went through it and into the car so he walks up to the driver's side of the car she's still like freaking out screaming he's like what happened what happened what and as soon as he opens the door she said i hit a man and he's in there clee is like what the fuck I, i know he was pissed he was pissed First of all, you knew I just got out of prison. You know I'm out here on parole. You know I'm trying to get my life together. Why you you blew up my phone 20 million times last night to for me to come and see a dead body? I got papers. I got kids. All this shit. Why the fuck you call me here? Like, he was immediately pissed. And I feel like, I feel him. Like, he was immediately pissed. Like, now I'm in it. She's apologizing to him. Uh, and she's like, I was on ecstasy. Like, I just can't believe I was that fucked up. Like, if I wasn't on ecstasy, this wouldn't happen. What do I do? What do I do? What do I do? What do I do? And he, and I mean, Cleet is like, oh, damn. He looks in the garage. He sees that there's like a rake or something. And then he pokes the body. He's just trying to make sure the nigga dead. Turns out he's still dead. He And also, he defecated on himself, so... <laughs> Nothing's I mean, changed. He, is, he defecated <laughs> on himself. They had that nigga on in court talking about some. How did? Where was? He was like, um, 
he had a bowel movement, and so I knew he was dead. And they're like, where was the bowel movement? That nigga looked at that white man like. He was like, is you stupid? Right. Or dumb. So at first they called T, and they're like, yo, T, we need to use your car because we need to get rid of his body. And T was like, hell no. No, you cannot use my shit for that. And so they were like, okay, well, what are we going to do? They started drinking, they smoking. They were like, oh, Cleet, let's go see if your baby mama will let us use your, her truck. So they go over to Cleet's baby mama house. Her name is Nikki. And they use her truck. After they get the truck, they go to Shantae's house. They go into the garage. Gregory, his head, of course, is on the floor of the passenger side under the glove compartment. His left hand was like inside of the glove compartment door. His ass was straight in the air. His back was halfway on the seat. And his left leg was almost completely detached from his body. It was like all of that and his legs were literally on like the center console of the car. So Cleet and Tyrone... They open up the passenger door and they roll this dead weight, this literal dead weight out of the car and onto a blanket and wrap him up. They laid him down on the blanket. They tied it in like a four corners way. The only way I can think of it is like like the stork. That's the only way I've imagined it when they said tie it four corners. So they tied it kind of like the stork with a baby and they put him in the trunk of the truck. So, they get in the car, they drive less than five minutes to Cobb Park. Now, Cobb Park is not the best park you can take your kids to. I mean, it was kind of a dumping ground for dead bodies. You know, while researching this case, we found four separate articles about bodies being found in Cobb Park. People leave their car there abandoned. It's just, you know, it's not unusual to come across a dead body here. So... They get to the park. No one's out there. They take the body out the blanket. They kind of just like open up the blanket and roll him out. So they dump the body. And I guess um, due to the impact, Greg's pants kind of were down a bit. And so, you know, his genitalia was exposed. And so Cleet, he lays jacket over Greg, you know, to kind of cover him up, give the man some decency. And he, like, tells them sorry one last time, you know. And they get in the car and they head to the nearest car wash. T, Shantae, Tyrone, and Vaughn were all there together in two separate cars. Tyrone and Vaughn took Nikki's truck through the car wash and vacuumed it inside while Shantae goes and throws away the blanket. And then she heads back to T's house. Upon arriving, Tyrone leaves, but Cleet stays with Shantae and they all sleep there. But not really. No one really got any sleep that night. Shantae cried the entire night and when she did get some sleep she was crying in her sleep she ended up being so shook up that she didn't want to return home and ended up staying at T's for like two months she was so scared and then she couldn't bring herself to go to work and then her utilities ended up getting cut off but it didn't matter because she went home anyways she went home no I don't think that that's how that story went. I'm not going to hold you. I think that her ass started sitting at home crying. And so her and she didn't have a way to get to work because she no longer had a car. So she lost her job, therefore lost her utilities and then moved in with T and decided to take up T's utilities. <laughs> that's how you think it went. <laughs> that's that was my understanding. You and I may have two different understandings of the timeline. When I watched T, she was like, she didn't go home that night. T is a, well, yes, she didn't go what home What you going to say, T is a liar? 
That's exactly what the fuck I was about to say. So you want me to back it up? Or you want to just leave that? Nope. I want to keep both of those. But yeah, after the first night, Cleet left. Uh, it was a Saturday, October 27, 2001. And, you know, that night after dumping the body, Cleet said, don't nobody talk about this ever again. And after leaving that Saturday, he didn't really see Shantae no more. I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to see her ass either. Yeah, sure wouldn't. So that same morning that um, Cleet leaves the house, October 27th, uh, a firefighter, an off-duty firefighter, is at the station. And these two guys come up in a truck and are like, hey, there's somebody dead at that park over there. So he goes up to Cobb Park and he ends up finding the body. Once he finds the body, he calls 911 immediately because there's no pulse. The body's cold and deformed. On the 911 call, he said it looked like he had been brutally beaten. The man had a blue shirt, blood-stained sweatshirt, a gray sports coat, and a green undershirt. It looked originally like he had on underwear and some khaki pants, but that was shredded. But the wallet was still tucked in the pockets. The underwear and pants were like around his ankle, and the left leg was basically amputated. But... You know, thankfully, they left his ID behind because that's how they were able to identify the dead man as Gregory Glenn Biggs. Officers respond to the call, and when they arrive, they, of course, too, could look at this man and tell he was dead. And they was like, he looks like he's been ran over by a car. The officer called homicide and the ME and the crime scene investigators to come process the scene and take pictures of the body. They see that the man has no... In Texas... Oh, sorry. (laughs) Go ahead. Keep going. You're on a roll. They they saw that the man had no shoes, no socks, and they were confused as to why. They look around and there's no sign of shoes, blood, or collision. So, this man was not hit here. The body's been moved. So... Gregory was born on August 16, 1964. He was 37 at this time. So at the time of his death, Gregory was actually homeless. Um, The reason why he got here is he was messing with this girl. And the girl was going through a hard time and she needed to borrow some money. And, you know, he wanted to help her because he was just a kind guy. And that's what... You know, kind people do. They help those in need. And he ended up letting her borrow this money, but at his own expense. So he worked as a, a mason, mason. A bricklayer. He he worked as a bricklayer or a mason. Um, he had his own company called Big Masonry. But after giving up this money to her, and I think it was on more than one occasion, he ended up falling behind on his truck payments. Well, his truck is his work. His truck ended up getting repossessed, and without his truck, he wasn't able to make any more money. He ends up falling behind on his payments where he lived and ends up getting kicked out. And from there, he just went to a homeless shelter. That's how he wound up homeless, is giving all his money away to this girl. Gregory had one son and an ex-wife. He and his wife's You know, they got married young and split up while they were young, too. His son, Brandon, lived with his mom, and they were together for a while until things got too hard for her, you know. It turned out that Gregory was suffering from mental illness, and he ended up being 
diagnosed with bipolar disorder and mild schizophrenia. When he would take the medicine he was prescribed, he would be good and he could live a normal life and he wasn't, you know, missing work or doing things like this. He was just a hardworking, friendly man. But when he wasn't on the meds, it could definitely f affect him and those around him, you know. I think that led to some of the reasons why it didn't work out with his ex-wife or whatever. But he still managed to be a good dad to his son. It had been two years since Gregory lost his home and had been staying in shelters or the street. But it wasn't for lack of trying. He was actually really trying to get his life together. And, you know, even while living homeless and staying on the street, he still kept in touch with his son, Brandon. And he would be like, you know, I don't have a phone, but here's a number that you can call to try and get in touch with me. And he, you know, still made sure to get his visitation time in. He could see him every other weekend. And, you know, he showed up for Brandon when he was supposed to. In the beginning of 2001, he did not have a car, but he managed to get a job driving a school bus to make money. And he was stacking it and saving it, you know, trying to do better, but something happened. We're not sure what, but last time anybody, including his son, had heard from him was July 2001. So now, nobody knows what Gregory was doing on the East Loop 820 to US 287, or why he was walking through that curb at 3 o'clock in the morning. I'm thinking it's because he's homeless, you know, trying to get to wherever he's trying to get to. And, you know, this is just an unfortunate way that his life ended, you know. I'm sure it's scary having somebody who suffers from mental illness and them disappearing. And you know, not, you don't know what's happening. And then to come and find out the worst has happened. It's kind of, it's a rough place it's to be. It's hard to come back from that. Yeah. Yeah. So... Um, Dr. Nizam Parwani was the medical examiner that did the autopsy of Gregory. He examined his head and noted that Greg's head had no cranial trauma. Um, there was no bleeding in the brain. There was no skull damage. There was a little bit of hemorrhaging beneath the scalp. But based off of what they could tell had happened, they, it could have been a lot worse. He examined the torso and found that all of his internal organs, like um, none of them had any type of trauma. So, you know, heart, lungs, spleen, kidneys, all the good stuff. Nothing was wrong with them. On the outside of him, the doctor could see that there were a lot of abrasions on his chest, on his right thigh. He called them, I think on court, in court, the, the medical examiner said they, they were dicing injuries. And he called them that because they happened because of the shards of glass that hit him and cut his skin. Because of those glass hitting him, the bleeding was significant, but it still wasn't like an excessive amount at that time. Not from the, the cuts and abrasions. His right arm was fractured and there were many cuts on his wrist, his left elbow, his fingers. The biggest injury was really his leg. Um, it was fractured. It was hemorrhaging. It was almost completely severed. That was his left leg. The blood vessels were so severely torn that when he got to the leg, there was literally only like a few tiny strands of muscle tissue and skin that was holding the leg in place. Like the bone was completely not holding that joint together. The medical examiner eventually decided that the cause of death was excessive blood loss from the cut leg. The police wanted to solve this crime, but they didn't know where to start. I mean, they just have a man. They have a name. They don't really have any witnesses. They don't have anything. And Cobb Park... Not even the location of the crime, right? Right. It was clear that that body moved. And the reason that they knew that is because when they found Greg at the park, he was laying on his back. 
but all of the blood was on the front of his shirt. And so they could tell by the way, I don't remember the term that they used in the uh, court and I'm going to try to. The way that the blood pooled was towards the front of the chest, the front of the body, the front of the clothes. So they could tell that when the injuries happened and when he was bleeding out, he wasn't bleeding out while laying on his back. He had to have been bleeding out on the front side. So that was a clear indication that the body had been dragged there as well as there were some drag marks leading up to the body as well as there not being enough blood around the scene so they were trying to find a place that maybe there was a car accident nearby they did see that a little while down the street in the same in the park there was like a um tire tracks that indicated that a car hit a tree but they were quickly were able to rule out that that car hitting a tree had nothing to do with greg's body that was in the park so actually the police when they were looking they went to the car wash and they found the bloody blanket uh dna of course wasn't what it is now so they didn't run any tests but they saw and found a bloody blanket so over at t's house remember shantae is you know being real sad she's being all mopey all she's doing is trying to like smoke and drink her i tried to drink it away she's just trying to drink and smoke her problems away and so t is like girl it has been a week since you hit that man let's get out let's go like Let's go to uh, Joe's Bamboo. It's 69 cent drink again tonight. Let's make it happen. And Shantae is like, I don't know if I want to go, girl. I'm not in the mood. Like, I'd rather just sit here and, you know, be at my pity party. And T is like, no, girl. We are getting up and we are going out. When they were at Joe's Bamboo, Shantae, she wasn't really, she wasn't really partying. She was kind of drinking and sitting by herself, right? But she ended up meeting a guy there. And so when she met this guy... She was like, you know, baby, we should come back to my place for a little privacy. So she brought the dude over to her house where there were no lights and had a good night. She met the dude, Derek, at the club. And then she started, after that night with Derek, um, they started a little relationship for the month and a, some, for a month and some change. In November, when Thanksgiving came around, she went to her family's house after not seeing them since the end of September. When she got to the house, everyone knew that there was something wrong, but she wouldn't say anything. They saw the scrapes and they saw the scrapes and gashes on her arm and asked her what happened, but she didn't say anything. Her mom thought maybe she had gotten into a fight out there hanging out with wild ass tea. This is the shit y'all get into, but she wasn't sure. All she knows is she's worried about her daughter. So we already said, Mama Dorothy, she does not like tea or the other girl Shantae was hanging out with, and so she's like, you know, obviously. This is stemming from that, you know, but I'm just happy to see her. It's Thanksgiving. I ain't going to come at her too tough, okay? Shantae sits down for dinner, and her mom's like, you know, Shantae, why don't you go ahead and say grace? She prayed, but after when everyone was ready to eat, Shantae runs to the bathroom to throw up. Her mom's like, oh, now I know something's wrong. So for the next couple of months, Shantae and T would occasionally hang out with their friends, trying to get their mind everything, but she's still affected by this. You know, trying to move on, trying to make a new life. But it's, it's definitely bothers her from time to time. Um, so one day they're sitting around and Shantae's doing her taxes. And she starts telling T, you know, I think when I get my tax money, I'm going to buy me a new car. And then her and T are talking some more. And she's like, actually, what about you just redo your car? Like, you know, you'll save yourself some money. Shantae's like, you know, that doesn't sound like a bad idea. Just, you know, strip the seats, put in some new ones. I think I might actually go with that or whatever, right? So time is passing. 
and it's like February-ish, and Shantae is still bothered, and she starts talking to T, like, girl, I think I want to turn myself in. I think I just want to, it is weighing on me. I don't know. I'm just, I'm, I'm struggling over here. I'm hurting Linda, and she just wasn't herself. One day, T was talking to Miranda Daniels from earlier, and she was like, girl, you want to know why Shantae's been acting so differently? It's because we got drunk one night, and on her way home, she done hit a white man with her car and killed him. And, you know, T thinks she's just confiding in a friend. Well, not too long after, Miranda and Shantae get into a little spat, and all of a sudden, Miranda is consumed with the burden of this secret and has to get it off her chest she goes home she says mama this is what she told me today can you believe this and her mom's like nope you you need to call the cops you need to turn her in that's terrible so on february 26 miranda calls 911 and she's like yeah y'all remember that homeless guy who was found in cop park with his leg hanging off, y'all might want to look into Shantae Mallard. Now, at the time, there was um, a $2,500 reward for anybody who had any information. And Miranda going back like, T, I, you know, I'll split this with you if you want. Because, you know, the only reason I know is because you told me. And T's like, girl, I do not want that money. Because I don't even know why you told. And, I mean, T's looking at Miranda like, I don't know why you told. But T, why did you tell Miranda? Right. If you needed to talk to somebody, you should have kept your mouth closed. Your your options were to talk to Shantae, Tyrone, or Cleet. Ain't no need for you to bring anybody else into the fold. So when Miranda was talking to the police, she was also saying that Shantae was like laughing and telling people openly at parties about what had happened, Mm -hmm. which I don't think anybody would be doing that. And it turns out that that was not true. Shantae was yeah, T was not like, going around just bragging. Lie. And she made her look so bad in the media and painted her out to be something who she's completely not. She said she was having sex while the thing, body man was in there dying. She, like, said he was alive long. Like, she really dragged it. Oh, yeah. Miranda did say a lot of shit mm-hmm. and didn't show up to court. <laughs> Oh, okay. Um, yeah, Miranda was saying a lot of shit. Miranda was like, oh, Terrence came over that night. And when Terrence came over, Shantae and Terrence had sex while Terrence knew that the body was in there. And then both of them went into the garage and they listened to the man moan and die. Like they got some t- type of enjoyment out of it. That too was also turned out to be a lie. She just was really painting this really bad picture of Shantae. And Shantae, what she did already was wrong as fuck we're not saying that it wasn't but you know if you're gonna lie if you're gonna tell the truth tell the truth so one thing that miranda did say that was the truth was that shantae still had the car and the car was in shantae's garage so the detective takes him and his home and his all his boys the homicide unit because in texas every time we watch this court case they said Your Honor, this is a homicide. So the homicide squad rolled up to her house. There was about 14 officers there. They knocked on the door and saw that it was a whole bunch of officers. She just broke down. She just started crying. She just started saying that she was just so 
sorry. And uh, the de- detective was like, do you want to talk to me and tell me what's going on around here? And she says, yes. The detective goes and sees what's... So the detective got a search warrant. And when he got there, there he arrived at her house between like 10, 10, 15 in the morning. And when he, he arrived, she stepped to the right. And when she stepped to the right, if she's standing, if she's facing the front door, her stepping to the right made her closest to the couch. She showed them where the garage was. The police officers opened the garage to verify the license plate and verify that it did belong to her. They asked her. Do you want to come back to uh, with us at the station? Tell us what happened. And she kind of was, she was like, yeah, I'll ride back to the station. And so she rode back with Detective Owings in an unmarked car. She was not arrested. She was in the back seat. Next to her in the back seat was Detective Johnson. Detective Johnson was a woman. Detective Owings drove. Once they got down to the police station, they were in his office. His office is one that is, um, it's like three people in one office type of thing. It wasn't like an interrogation room like we're used to victims being like we're used to um folks being questioned and he was in an office like there was paintings in the office and then he reads her her rights he remirandizes her she initials by each of the you know you have the right to make sign everything you can say saying will and can it will be used for you in the court of law she had to sign by it saying that she understood it they sat there and talked for 31 minutes just talked no one took any notes. No one recorded anything. Just chit-chatted, just the two of them. Detective Johnson sat outside of the office. At around 11.17 in the morning, that is when Owens typed up the statement that Mallard had said. She was kind of saying what happened, and he was typing. She didn't actually write it herself. She said that, you know, that night she was feeling loose. She was still wobbly. And a couple times she was like, you know, I really would like to, I want to call my brother. She never has to call a lawyer. She wanted to call her brother. And they were like, you know, you don't have to worry about it. And then, after Detective Owens types up the statement, he gives it to Shantae. Shantae doesn't even read it. She's just so distraught. She's so upset about everything that just happened that she signs the statement and she's arrested. This is the statement that Owens typed that she allegedly said, word for word. On Friday morning at 2 a.m., I was driving home from Joe's Big Bamboo. I had two drinks. I felt real loose. I know I can handle my liquor. I think someone might have slipped me something. I drove in my 1997 Cavalier home. When I was coming around the bend, I hit a guy. The car didn't slow down. I was so afraid that I didn't even know what I was doing. I don't even know how I got home. He was in my car, through my front windshield. I put the car in the garage, and I got in the car, and I just cried. I talked to the man, and he would respond to me. I'm not sure what he said. I told him I was so sorry. I wanted to take him to the hospital, but I was so scared. I went into my house and cried. A little later, I went back to the garage telling the man how sorry I was, but he just moaned. I kept going in and out so many times. I don't know how long the man lived for sure. I called a man I know named Bon. He came over and when we looked in the garage, he fell down and started crying. He couldn't believe it happened. I was throwing up and he was trying to get me to calm down. They took me to Tulisi Fry's house. He came back and another guy was with him. I asked him what I should do and he said, don't worry, I took care of it. I was scared. He told me not to worry about it. I couldn't look into the garage until Monday, but when I did, the man was gone. Over the last couple months, I took the seats out and some of the interior and tried to burn the front seat. I was so scared because I didn't want to go to jail. I swear I wouldn't hurt anyone. Signed by C.M. Shantae Mallard, February 26, 2002. Of course, this is her first statement to the police which so detective Onings was shook you know he was he was of course shook when he heard the original 911 call like okay somebody 
hit somebody and drove with them still hanging out the windshield sure but going there and seeing it for himself he's like and her saying it with her own words like wow she really hit somebody and drove with them in the windshield so he goes to the da with the written statement and then to the judge to get a warrant for her arrest and then to the magistrate for the arraignment. They arrest her and charge her with felony failure to stop and render aid. After arraignment, she was quickly released on a $10,000 bond and went home to her family. The news in Texas and all around America began reporting about this gruesome tragedy. It was famously known as the windshield death. For a while, Texas news outlets began to tear Shantae apart. Now, of course, a lot of this is due to the things that uh, Miranda said. They made cartoons about it. Um, they called her every name in the book. They said she was a cold-hearted drug addict. There's even an article in the Fort Worth Star-Telegram titled Scant Sympathy for Shantae Mallard. Then, on March 6, 2002, the DA was talking to the medical examiner about the wounds and caused the death of Gregory. The Emmy told them that Gregory was alive for a few hours after he was hit and while he was lodged in Shantae's windshield. He said that due to almost a total amputation of his leg, he actually died from bleeding out. He did suffer, and the Emmy said that he would definitely be alive today if Shantae had called for help or used any of her CNA training to help him. The DA told detectives that they would use this information to gather more. They would use this information to help them gather more information and talk to other people. A month later, on April 25, 2002, after listening to the Emmy, Shante was indicted on one felony murder charge and one tampering with evidence charge and given a new bond of 250000 But this time she stayed in jail until her trial. Take that shit to trial, bitch. Take that shit to trial, bitch. Take that shit to trial, bitch. Take that shit to trial. When her trial comes, she pleads not guilty to felony murder, but guilty for tampering with evidence. From the statement that she provided to the police, they go and arrest Cleet Tyrone, and then they just question T. On September 12, 2002, Tyrone pleads guilty to tampering with evidence, and as a plea bargain, he agrees to testify against Shantae at trial. They also threatened him and said that his baby mama Nikki was going was gonna to go down, too, for tampering with her, for... Uh, she was going to go down and they were going to give her a charge as well if he didn't testify and take the plea bargain against Shantae. Um, he got 10 years in prison. I know that we were calling him, we were saying that Cleet's nickname was Vaughn, but honestly, when y'all hear that, when y'all go, everybody calls him Vaughn. They all, everybody says that Cleet and Vaughn are the same person, but T out of her own mouth calls him Vaughn. Shantae out of her own mouth calls him Vaughn. But as soon as Cleet gets up there, he said, no, I do not. I've never gone by the name Vaughn. Like, well, whatever your name is. But you're the one that did it. Yes, Tyrone gets nine years, Cleet gets ten years, and they told T that if she testified against Shantae and she told them everything that that they knew, that she would get complete immunity from this entire thing. According to everybody else, she was lying in court too, so when it came down to T <laughs> she was lying under oath. Like twice. She lied to the grand jury twice. 
And the way that, that everybody caught her in the lie, because she was trying to stay out of it. You know, this ain't her business. You know, she trying to fuck the rest of them. She ain't going to prison, right? So she's lying, she's lying, she's lying. And finally, the grand jury is like, um, here's some phone records that say that, A, you was with Shantae multiple times, that you your phone pinged, all these things. We have you. And she was like, okay, yeah, y'all got me. I tell y'all the real truth. And they were like, you can tell us the real truth. They were like, okay. She was like, okay, y'all got me. And they were like, okay, listen, this is what we're going to do. We need you to testify against Shantae. You testify against Shantae, you'll get complete immunity. And if you you don't, we're putting your ass in jail on perjury charges. Perjury plus tampering with evidence plus facilitating the cover-up of a crime, like all all of the charges. We're going to stack them against you. And she was like, you know what? I'll tell y'all whatever y'all want to know. And she did. She testified against her air heavy air quotes, BFF, at her trial. The trial began on June 23rd, 2013. Shantae was literally just turned 27, because remember her birthday is June 22nd. And everybody is there ready to... Get the show on the road. Shantae's trial took place at the 371st District Court in Tarrant County, and the presiding judge was Judge James Randall Wilson. As soon as the trial began, the judge placed a gag order on the lawyers and otherwise involved the cases so there will be no additional media interface. Meaning they can't speak, they can't talk to nobody. Um, this is probably because one of the assistant prosecutors, Richard Alford, um, was quoted saying... I'm going to have to come up with a new word. Indifferent isn't enough. Cruel isn't enough to say. Heartless? Inhumane? Maybe we've just redefined inhumanity here. And so that's why the judge was like, hey, y'all need to shut the fuck up and stop talking to the media. Haven't, haven't y'all understood what the, what the court of law says? Trial by media. Man, it gets you every time. Shantae's trial, when it began, it literally lasted four days. Just in and out. I'm telling y'all, y'all can watch it on court TV. It began with it began with opening statements where the prosecution wanted the jury to know, you know, Shantae is a CNA. And so when all this happened, we understand shock, but... You're a CNA. You're trained. You're somewhat trained. You're, you know, you have experience in the medical profession. You should know what to do or at least how to render aid, especially know how to call 911, call for some type of help. The defense of course, was like, listen, she was panicked. It was dark. She was on a drug that she had not had an experience with like that before. She just was so panicked at the time that she wasn't thinking and, and she didn't know right from wrong. And at the moment, um, they, they, did, they just didn't know. Trial proceedings started with the firefighter that found the body. I mean, like, they were doing a pretty good job telling the story. So the firefighter came up and told about how the body was found, his initial thoughts, how he ended up under knowing that the body was there. And then they brought up Sheila Daniels. Now Sheila Daniels, I'm wondering I bet you're wondering who that is. That's Miranda's Daniels mom. So they play Miranda's nine one one call and she confirms that that was her daughter that was on the nine one one call and she says that she that she told the police that, you know, Miranda Shantae was laughing and telling people about um what had happened, this event that had happened at parties and of course, like I'm telling y'all, that was a lie. But of course, at the time, like the jury doesn't know that that is not the truth because somebody's saying it under oath. Well, not even that somebody's saying it under oath. Her mom is just confirming that that's what her daughter said. But her daughter isn't under oath. Her daughter is 
somehow at the not, last minute unable to show up to court. She's not able to show up. And they were like, well, where is she? And they couldn't answer. And then they were like, well, um, is she unable to, is she, would it pain her to be in court today? She was like, yes. She was like, is she physically unable to come to court today? And then she said, yes. And you know what I think? Think somebody was trying to make horse sure that Miranda <laughs> Either horse shit or somebody was trying to make sure Miranda didn't speak. Because you went around blabbing your big old, I mean. So then they bring out Titalisi T. Fry. T testifies that they each had half an X pill before going to Joe's Big Bamboo. They get there at 1150. She says this is her first time meeting Cleet this night. And this isn't necessarily true because um, Shantae and Cleet had already been fucking around a little bit. And Cleet had already had a bad taste in his mouth about T. And Cleet was like, you need to stop hanging out with her. But T says she don't know this man up until this night. She says they met up with a bunch of guys. They drank. They danced. They had a good time. They have about three hurricanes each, you know, because the 69 cents. And then after the club closed, they hung outside. And then, you know, Shantae gets in the car, drives a few feet. She's like, girl, you're too drunk. Cleet says, yeah, you are too br- drunk. T, you need to drive. Um... Which is another hint into the lie because, you know, per Shantae and Cleet, Cleet left early with a, uh, another girl. So, how he telling her to drive? T said on her own, girl, you too drunk to drive. But she continues telling her tale. And when they got to T's house, she says that she asked Shantae to come inside and she said she didn't want to. She said, girl, you sure you can get home? And Shantae's like, yeah, girl, I'm fine. She was like, you want me to follow you home? And Shantae says, no, girl, I'm good. She said, so I watched her and I made sure she was good. And then I went upstairs and took a shower and I went to bed. They're asking her, like, why didn't Shantae stay? And she was like, I don't know. You know, I offered. But Shantae was like, you want to go home? But remember, Shantae said she was supposed to have a man friend over. She said she was home alone. Um, she says she dozed off and got woken up by Shantae calling her saying, T, come pick me up around 3.30 a.m. T says she tries to get it out of her. Um, Shantae's not giving it up. She goes to her house right before 4 a.m. Shantae comes out running, crying, yelling, screaming. Gets in the car, tells her to find Terrence. They go to look for Terrence. They're unsuccessful. They go back to Shantae's. When they get to the house, Shantae shows T, the guy in the car. And T's like, girl, you need to call 911. And Shantae said, no, that's not what we need to do. And T was like, no, that's going to be your best bet is to call 911 right now. And Shantae says, mm, actually, no. So T says, so then I left, and Shantae followed me. And then that's when they called Cleet, and they drive back to T's house. And then Cleet comes, and he takes care of it. Now, T continues to testify that Shantae was really affected by the accident, and she wasn't laughing, and she wasn't telling people about the accident. Um, she said that Miranda lied about what happened due to a fight that they was in and she was just trying to fuck Shantae over and that's why she told. So next, the crime scene investigator comes on the stand and he's the guy Hold on, wait a second, friend. Did you peep when, um, T said on the stand that... Terrence, the other guy that she was fucking around with on and off, uh, the, the, the guy that Shantae was fucking around with on and off, had an apartment in Shantae's name. 
What? No. You didn't peep that? And I was like, hold on, what the fuck? And Terrence lived there while they was on again, off again. Even though, like, it was in her name. I guess he could, I guess he didn't have no credit. I don't know. Maybe, mm-hmm. maybe he have no credit. And so she put her name on his Well, lease. how good is her credit after she done let all these utility bills go to the point of being cut off? Um, yeah, so next is the crime scene investigator who searched the, um, car and documented everything in the garage and connected the blood spatters and all that and he's showing the jury the positions that he was in he's like okay when we got here there was no windshield and everybody else who was there that night they said Chante still had the driver's part of her windshield I mean it was cracked and ready to fall but it was there you know not the passenger mm-hmm. side, but the driver's side. At this point, when they come, there's no windshield. It's all gutted out. Um, they're also showing that there are no seats in the car. So Shantae proceeded with her plan of rebuilding the car. They next call a firefighter who worked with her older brother, James Jr. And he talked about how firefighters are all EMTs and they are trained to like help and be, you know, firefighters first are supposed to be the first First, like out of the first responders, it's supposed to be firefighter, police, and ambulance. Mm-hmm. Because, and they say you want the firefighters there first because firefighters know how to do everything. If the ambulance gets there, ambulance can't put out a fire. If the cops get there, they can't put out a fire, you know, or de, you know, but firefighters come, they can de escalate, they can um, help you if you're ill, they can put out a fire. They're the ones capable of doing everything. So, if you had a problem, a firefighter would you know, be a great option of somebody to call for help. I also think because, you know, of course the firefighters are going to end up calling the police, but firefighters are never there to punish you. That's not their job. Right. It's a little easier to work with them. The firefighter proceeds to tell the jury that where she had the accident was only five minutes from the fire station and that her brother James worked at that very fire station and was on duty when she hit Gregory, and she was like, she just should have called somebody, anybody, for help. Not co-conspirators, but, like, actually offer some help to this man. Not not necessarily help for you, help for him. He's the most important person right now. Mm-hmm. So now it's time for Mr. Cleet Jackson to take the stand. They left him dressed in his prison uniform, and, but he wasn't cuffed, and he gets up on the stand, and first thing he lets that jury know is his name is not Vaughn. They said, what's your name? Cleet? You go by any other names? No. So you don't go by Vaughn? No. Is this you in this picture? Yes. But you don't go by Vaughn? No. So he tells the jury how he met Shantae and what he did to dump the body, you know. He, he didn't really look too happy to be in court, to be honest. He was ready to go home. Hell, and, um, I wanna go home. That was that was his face the whole time. Every time they asked him a dumbass question, he looked at them like y'all. He gave them a dumbass look, like like that nigga. He barely made eye contact with the prosecutor. He just looked so annoyed to even be they, in the situation. They showed him pictures of evidence. He didn't look at it. He was just like, yeah. Because, you know, they got to show it to you for you to verify. He he would turn his head completely away and just say, yeah, that's it. Well, the projector is on the left. And so you see the prosecutor. He's like, look at these pictures. And I, I think he got issues with the prosecutor. And the prosecutor's like, or you can look over there. I'm sure um, you do. Right. Threatening me and my baby moms. Right. They're asking him, like, so, Cle, uh, what was your reaction when you got there? 
He was like, I was mad. And he was like, why was you mad? He was like, because I'm like, why did you call me? Why did you do it? Why did you call me? Why did you let T give you ecstasy? Like, it's a series of bad decisions. And he was like, well, you know, why are you mad that she called you? He was like, because I just got out of jail and she knew that. I had papers, meaning he's on probation. Like, why are you getting me mixed up in this shit? Which, um, they're asking him why he testified and took the plea or whatever. And, you know, he had to keep his baby mama out of jail. So he made sure that she had full immunity if he testified. Um, they actually ended up getting married while he was in jail. They asked him, you know, how Shantae was reaction, and he maintained that Shantae was distraught. Shantae was crying the whole time. Shantae was like, "We girl, we gotta calm you down," you know. Um, they even questioned his uh, motives for dropping the body off at the park. They was like, "Why would you drop it off at a park? You know, worried that kids will see it." He's like, "I am worried that kids will see it." Like, so why you want to drop it there? He was like, "Because." I want this man's family to have closure. You know what I'm saying? Hey, talking about burn the body or do whatever. No, somebody's got to find him so that somebody can bury him. But, you know, he finishes off still supporting Shantae. It's not her nature to hurt people. I know that, you know, if she wasn't under influence, she wouldn't have been in this situation to begin with. This was truly an accident. It was not on purpose. Afterwards, Shantae was fucked up. She was suicidal. She had to be watched around the clock and stuff or whatever, and they truly worried about her mental state. Next to take the stand was the medical examiner, Dr. Nazim Perwani, who went over the status of Gregory's body and the cause of death of him bleeding out. We told you a little bit about this earlier. Um, You know what I like about watching the juries? Sometimes, only some of them, like... There was a police officer that took the stand earlier. He was only up for like 20, 30 minutes, so we didn't really mention it. But like, they make you state your credentials. And one of the very few times that Shantae's lawyers objected was because they asked the police officer a question about blood and how it moves. And they were like, oh, he's not qualified not qualified to answer that question but like when you get the medical examiner up there or like the blood spatter uh expert up there you know them them qualified to get into the nitty-gritty but i mean the medical examiner did say everything that we told you about the internal organs nothing was and nothing was uh horribly damaged other than the severed leg and it really was a real possibility that he could have survived the injuries and one of the reasons that the injuries got worse is because when it happened upon impact, she kept going. Like, you kept driving, and I'm still in this contorted position. If she would have stopped and rendered aid or stopped and found help, even – and a lot of people – I, I know think y'all even if she would have stopped and left the car there – and somebody be like, is this nigga's feet hanging out the front of the car? Like, something. And I forgot, I don't think we mentioned it earlier. If y'all are asking, like, this is the early 2000s. T had a cell phone. Shantae did not have a cell phone. Yeah, However, oh, okay, I'm just making sure. But there was, a, there was a, she was around, like, she went on the highway. It was a four-lane street, but she went on the highway. So, anyways. The last person to take the stand uh, was... Brandon Biggs, that's Gregory Biggs' son. He told the jury about his dad, about his mental health struggles, his homelessness. And I think the goal of that was because this entire trial was about what she did, what she didn't do, her choices, the decisions, what responsibility, what is she going to take. And at the end of the day, they needed something to really humanize 
Greg and who he was, despite the fact that he was homeless, despite the fact that he had mental health issues, he still was an, an all around human being. You know what I'm saying? Um, and at the time he wasn't able to speak for himself. So when the trial ended, the jury went out to deliberate on June 26, 2003. So the jury went out to deliberate and everybody's holding their breath, but they didn't have to hold it for long because the jury came back in one hour and they found her guilty of murder and failure to stop and render aid. Next was the sentencing phase. Shantae was facing life in prison for murder and five additional years for failure to stop and render aid. Uh, The entire trial is on court TV. You're going to have... Court TV, just literally Google Court TV Shantae Mallard and you can watch it from beginning to end and you don't want to miss even the small little, the white folks, you're going to be like, I don't want to hear this white man. Yes, you do. The drama is drama, drama, drama. Once the sentencing phase starts, Brandon Biggs, he gets up and he tells the Mallard family, you know, that he's really sorry. You know, he didn't lose somebody. They lost somebody too. And he lost a father. They lost a daughter. And he says that he forgives Shantae. You know, these are the type of testimonies, the type of impact statements that you want to hear when sentencing phase comes, right? Because you don't know what how much time you're going to get. Um, the defense had Dorothy, which, again, is Shantae's mom, and James, her dad, and James Jr., her older brother, testify as character witness witnesses they talked about uh, they said that how much they loved her and how they knew that you know some people make mistakes and she was a good person and they just really wanted to let the jury know that they would be there for her to support her to love her um when she got out of prison the prosecution they really grilled Shantae's mom they told her that Shantae had 13 jobs in six years and that she was using drugs The prosecution kept asking her about her daughter being a drug addict and having a drug problem. But her mom said that she did not smoke pot and her daughter did not have a drug problem. Her mom told the jury that she did not like tea. She made it very clear. And she really didn't like the people that Shantae was hanging out with. But she's young and she wanted to be rebellious. And when James, her dad, got up there, uh, he's an older gentleman. You can tell that he has had a lot of life. And the whole time, he was just trying not to cry, but he was crying because, you know, that's his baby girl. And by the Mm -hmm. end of his testimony, he was, like, hysterical. It was really hard to – y'all got to watch it. It's sad. Um, James Jr., who is the oldest brother, who is the firefighter, said that during the trial, like, he was just talking about how much he loved his sister and how much he wished that she would have called on him because he knew how – he could have helped her in, in, in the positive way, you know? Um, one of her childhood friends testified and said how, like, her and Shantae were always really close, but they stopped being as close when she was hanging out with T. How Shantae was just not that type of person. She wouldn't, you know, you got people going up there telling you the type of person that they are. And at the very, 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 very end, she had been found guilty. Shantae gets to take the stand and gets questioned. At this point, she's been found guilty. She don't know how many years she's got. She's got nothing to hide. So, Shantae gets on the stand and tells the jury that she had, in fact, taken an X pill before, but it was just one pill. She didn't feel anything. She thought she would be just fine on a half a pill. I mean, if one pill did nothing for me, then what was half a pill going to do? Nothing, right? She says, this one had her messed up. And she was like, it's not only the driving that I could tell before we even get there. I done broke T-Sandal after getting to the club. Because I'm just so fucked up. She was like, and I, and I couldn't understand why I was this fucked up. 
she says when she got to T's house, uh, T was in a hurry for her to leave and because she had to go meet a guy and she didn't, you know, want to ask T if she could stay. She's like, I'm not trying to block, you know, I know she got plans going on. So, you know, I'm just going to take my ass home. She's like, I didn't stop and call for help because I don't have a cell phone. Although they sat there and mapped out every business that was still open that had a pay phone or a phone that she could have walked in to call that she passed on her way home. She says she doesn't remember seeing him. She just heard the loud noise. And after driving a couple of feet or whatever, she sees him. And this only happened because she took the X. Like if she was jumping high off weed, like she usually is, she would have been fine. She knows how to do it. I would have been, I mean, she knows how to handle herself. She would have been coherent enough. She was like, but that X just had her throat. She did admit to going back to Joe's Big Bamboo the week after and going home with a guy. But she was like, it was just to stop feeling the way that I was feeling. I just was trying to escape any way I could. The defense made her aware that with no criminal record, she can usually ask the jury for a probation. But she was like, you know, I do think I need to serve some time. I do think I deserve to be punished, you know. When the prosecution got to ask her questions, at the sentencing, they didn't quite take it easy on her. They asked her how long she had been smoking weed, and she was like, basically, since I was 18, they asked her why. She was like, to relax, because I enjoy it. She said, I'm not a big drinker, and smoking was for me. She, uh, They was like, how often did you smoke? She was like, at first, just a little bit, but it became a little more frequent. And it was like, what's frequent? Um, morning, afternoon, and the evening <laughs> for about five, six years. Um, they was like, so if you smoking in the morning, you must be going to work high, right? She was like, well, yes, I was. And she was like, so you taking care of people while you stone? And she was like, I mean, yeah. Well, I wouldn't be stoned while I take care of them. I would smoke in the morning, and then later that day, I would. After work. And then, you know, girl, you know, one of her jobs before she started working as a CNA, she was working as a CO mm, at as the a correctional office. They was like... And- were you stoned taking care of prisoners? And she was like, no. And it was like, so why couldn't you pass a drug test? And she's like, because weed stays in your system for 30 days. And it was like, so if weed stays in your system for 30 days and you've been smoking morning, noon, and night for the past five, six years, how you become a corrections officer? How you pass a drug test? She's like, um, sometimes I got clean and sometimes I, you know, cheated. I was like, well, how Everybody. do you cheat a drug test? You get some fake urine or something. I done put bleach in the urine. They was like, bleach in the urine? What that do? She says, make a test invalid. He said, did it work? She said, yeah. <laughs> you know, I'm not going to tell anybody to try it, but, you know, for sure let me know. It just doesn't feel right. She said she read somewhere that bleach will purify it. <laughs> I read um, that, too, a long time ago. You, but, you know, the tests have evolved since then. Right. Since, what, 1990s? Also, yeah. like, the look on drugs is so bad. I mean, you you heard when they were like, so who'd you buy the weed from? How much weed would you buy? They were like, what's the most weed you've bought in that one time? And she, she was like, she like was an like, ounce. And they were like, an ounce? So, <laughs> was like, bitch, like, that's another felony. Intent to sell, intent to distribute. They were like, um, who did you buy the weed from? She's like, different people. They were like, who? They were like, she was like, it would change periodically. Give me a name. No. And she's like, I don't. She she held out like I think she she was like Zachary I think she made up a name I don't know if that's true I don't know if she actually made up a name. <laughs> having enough but, people suffered right well I gotta give up another name 
for a while there, prosecution starts getting really weird. And they're like, didn't you have porn in your house? Didn't you have porn in your room? Oh, what did Cleet bring porn? I'm like, what the fuck does porn have to do with this story? Yeah, like, they took the jury out for that part because they were trying to, they were trying to, I, I don't know what porn had to do with anything. With any of it. So, she was, they was getting a little weird, but then they, you know, finish it off and they're just like, have you seen what drugs have done to your life? And she's like, yes. It's ruined so many people's lives, my ride, and I'm so, my life, and I'm so sorry. And then... They was like, you know, kind of drilling it in. So you knew that drugs ruined your life that night, but then you continued to take drugs afterwards? You took drugs while you was on probation and the first time and all of that stuff, didn't you? She was like, yeah. And it was like, when's the last time you smoked? She was like, well, not since I've been arrested, so <laughs> I'm right. clean now. Um, But there was just like, yeah, you've destroyed so many lives on these drugs, you know? And she was like, no, I absolutely do know, and I'm so sorry. Um, she says, I'm sorry to Brandon Biggs, and she says she's sorry to her family. She also said that her original statement was not the complete truth. Nobody put something in her drink. She just didn't want to tell the cops about the ecstasy because she wanted to protect T. She also says, for clarification purposes, I never went in and out to keep checking if he was dead. I said, I'm sorry. I walked away. I came back. I didn't think he was alive no more. I mean, I was still apologizing to him, but at that point, I'm sure he was dead, you know? He wasn't, I wasn't making no just more waiting sounds. for him to die. Right. right. Less than a day after finding her guilty on both counts, they, the jury came back after a sentencing decision. For murder, they gave her 50 years. For tampering with evidence, 10 years for a total of 60 years. After her sentence was read, the defense made the juries confirm one by one that this was their decision. I hate that part. Because they literally have to go down the aisle and be like, yep, I'm good. Yeah, it is straight. Yeah, that's what I want. Whew, in your face. All 12 of them. 11. How many of them? 11. 12. It's 12 jurors. <laughs> I was like, mm. <laughs> All 12 of them. After the verdict was in and she was sentenced, Shantae was taken into custody and transported to Gatesville Correctional Facility to the Dr. Lane Murray unit, where she will be until 2052. She's eligible for parole in 2027, which is half of her sentence. Right now, she is 26 years old and trying to stay out of trouble and serve her time. Uh, since she's been incarcerated, she has not had a single infraction that we could find. Um, James Jr., her brother, is still a lieutenant firefighter at Fort Worth. And Dorothy and James Sr. are still serving in their church on the usher board as the deacon and deaconess. Brandon Biggs, Gregory's son, filed a wrongful death lawsuit. It was settled out of court, so don't know how much money he got for that um what we do have record of though is a group on death row convict which are um, a group of convicted murderers from around the country raised ten thousand dollars from sales of a newsletter for brandon to finish college at southwest assemblies of god university in wakahatchee texas because these people these folks on death row they because he was able to forgive Shantae, that's what moved them to do something good for him. Cleet did his 10 years, and he got out in 2013, but has since 
going back to prison and got out of prison and went back to prison again on firearm charges, on drug charges. He just kind of been going in and out since since his release in November of 2017. But yeah, he's just been kind of going in and out of prison. Um, He got hemmed up on November 2017. He goes back two separate different times. And then in 2018 for evading arrests with the vehicles, he got 180 days. And then in 2020 for property theft. So he is still at it. Um, He stole between $30,000 and $150,000. And use fraudulent info, possession of info. He got 3,180 days. He probably did uh, one of them PPP scams. He's up for parole in August of 2020. <laughs> no, that's not I guess he, he a little early. He a little early, huh? But he was out there scamming. That's what that sounds like, taking 30,000, 15,000. Yeah, he was scamming. He was scamming for sure. Um, He was up for parole in August of 2021, but they denied it because it was like, listen, nigga, all you do is get in trouble. If I let you out, what you going to do? Get in trouble. So let's just save ourselves time. You can come here and rock out the rest of it. They also was like, on top of that, you brutally assaulted a conscious selection of victims in your assault. So, no. Um, Like we said, back in court, he he did marry his baby mama, Nikki, uh, the owner of the truck that they used to dump the body. But, you know, he held his girl down. Took the time for the both of them. Ain't no need in us both getting in trouble. Somebody got to raise this kid. Um, His next parole review date is August of 2022. So, depending on when you hear this episode, this month or last month. So, we'll let you know. Um, Or y'all can check for yourselves on the Texas Department of Criminal Justice and see what Mr. Cleet has been up to. Mm -hmm. Google does y'all well. (laughs) <laughs> now Tyrone did his nine years and there has been no active cases for him since there's nothing pending right now but at least not in Texas I don't know if you got busy elsewhere but seems like he's on the straight and narrow T is the only way who got away scot-free everyone else who participated and saw Gregory's body that night and had anything to do with getting rid of his body or helping her cover it up they got at least nine years in prison everybody except for her so we looked into her she got married to a Q back in 2012 she changed her last name to Sullivan and had two sons she's a youth track she's a youth track coach and still lives in Texas but um she did come out some years later doing an interview with she didn't want to be identified like me and I'll see her on the thing but they blacked her out and she was just kind of talking about you know that's when she she spread the news of how Miranda lied and you know how nobody was really just trying to do something bad they were all just trying to not get in some huge amount of trouble you know even herself like I didn't want to get in trouble for giving her the ex like how much trouble are you going to get in to forgiving somebody some ex that they willingly said like ex there's a murder <laughs> ex right. this man's hanging out the windshield like come on now but yeah that's the story of Shantae Mallard alright y'all it's time for well I'm not black I'm OJ I didn't do it but if I did this is how I would have got away with it friend I have a laundry list um, well, number one, if you're going to burn something, A, why did you wait months? She started disassembling and uh, taking the car apart 
two weeks before she got arrested in February from a crime that happened in October. And she only got to burn one seat. She only burned the passenger seat. That's as far as she got. Her or the guys, that's how far everybody got. Burn everything and do it immediately. Don't be waiting. I ain't do it, but if I did, I would have stopped driving that car. Soon as I see my windshield broke like that and there's a body in it, oh, we have to stop. Again, I don't care if we left that car on the side of the road. Yeah, walk care. home. Right. Like, I understand. She, even if even if you had to drive it just a little further. As soon as I see somebody with a light on, I'm pulling the fuck over. Y'all have got to help this man. You could have even drove to the hospital and maybe even left him in a hospital, left the car in a hospital parking lot or something. It's just so many options. Pull the car and right up by the fucking fire station. You know what I mean? So you you had better decisions to be made. I didn't do it, but if I did, if it's one thing for somebody to take your keys once in a night because, you know, you're having a good night. But it's something for somebody to take your keys twice in one night. And I feel like that should have been a sign. You know, like, Mm -hmm. damn, this nigga took my keys and my bestie took my keys. I guess I'm really off the rocker today. Calm down. Even if you slept in your car, I've I've been drunk as hell and slept in my own car, locked my ass in, and, and just, that is facts. You know, because I couldn't make it home, but I made sure that I was in a safe environment and I did not move because I didn't want to be a danger to a myself because <laughs> priceless commodity and to anybody <laughs> else. I didn't do it, but if I did, I would have called the cops. And the reason why I would have called the cops is because sometimes you have to have long term thought about things. And I'd rather get caught up on an accidental car accident than an intentional cover-up of murder. Absolutely. So I looked it up, and vehicular manslaughter gets you 2 to 20 years. That's if he died, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, vehicular homicide in Texas, they, they said they can get up to life or whatever, but... And and that's just because of um, the MAD group, Mothers Against Drunk Driving. They really drive that up there. But um, I don't think the way everybody described the injury, that if she would have called 911 at that point, he would have died. That's everybody's thing. So you're not looking at vehicular manslaughter or homicide. You're looking at reckless driving. You're looking at maybe assault with a vehicle, if that's a thing. But... You're not looking at taking somebody's life. You're not looking at putting your life behind bars for the rest of your days. You right. might do some jail time, and that's okay. And but, yeah, and I wonder if that would have it. Probably even though it was it was ecstasy and drinking, and in Texas, you know, they also have intoxication manslaughter, which is like, you know, I didn't mean to do it. You know, I did not mean to hit him. No one just goes around, you know, playing let's hit the pedestrian, but he ends up passing. That's still it's a first degree felony, but it's like five to it's five to life. You could have done a five year bid if you would have at least tried to she says something when they were interviewing her and it goes to your point about thinking. She said, quote, I couldn't think to do the right thing. Y'all, when shit happens, 
you got to take a step back and think how all the different ways, if you keep just going off of emotion and she was so riled up, she was just going off of emotion. She didn't not even allow herself time to think. And then she was so frantic that I'm sure she was freaking out everybody around her. So nobody else could think, stop, think, what weigh your options. If she would have pulled the car over and stopped to think for a second, Probably screamed, probably had to get out, probably had to throw up. I don't know. But if you would have just thought for a second and then you hear him, you got to get him out. You have to give some type of aid. And she just did not think. Y'all got to stop being nurses and nurses, aides and medical professionals and letting people die on your watch. It doesn't go well in court for you guys. It just doesn't. Right. I ain't do it, but if I did, Shantae, when Detective Owings typed up what you said, what he said that you said, and you said that you said, and gave it to you to sign, you should have reread it before you put your signature on it. Because if there was something on there that was not the truth, and there was, and she was, and at the time she was still trying to cover up for T, cover for girl. Just tell them what happened. I ain't do it, but if I did, I would have asked for a lawyer. Because she was like, I think I should call my brother. I want to call my brother. We don't have to stop an interview for you to call your brother. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't an official interrogation. She wasn't in an interrogation room. And she at no point said, I want this interview to end. I need a lawyer. No point. Uh, this one is for T. If everything that you say in your statement is true, may insert side eye here. If you tell your friend it's time to call 911, you know, it, it gets to a point where it's like, okay, now it's time. we cannot handle this on our own. If I tell my friend it's time to call 911 and they say, no, that's not the right idea, and there's a dead person, I'm leaving. I'm walking away. Get your ass out my car. You can't. Don't hop in my car. Mm-hmm. This is something you need to figure out on your own. And I'm out of here. Don't. Don't even call me. Don't call me. I'm not answering your phone calls for a minimum of a month. Let <laughs> me know where you at then. Yeah, that's how I feel for like Cleet too. Were you talking about T? I was talking about T, but yeah, okay. you're right. That's how I feel for um, Cleet too. Like. He gets on the stand and he says, once he sees what happened, he's pissed because why'd you pull me into this? I got papers. You already know your situation. You already know you don't need this on your plate. That was your sign to walk the fuck out of there. But I think he and Shantae probably had some type of genuine relationship because he really put himself on the line. It was like, I'll take care of this, you know. And maybe he felt like that was his duty as a man or whatever, but... You knew it was some shit, you know, some shit that you didn't want to do. Not only that, but then after being mad that she called you to pull you into that shit, you going to call another nigga and pull him into that shit? Yeah, way too many people were in this. Did you peep um, when (laughs) Shantae's lawyer, did you peep when Shantae's lawyer did an opening statement? Shantae's lawyer was also um, Cleet's lawyer when he pled guilty. And he said in his opening statement, he was like, 
Cleet will tell you, because, you know, they go through all, someone's, you're going to learn today. It's like Cleet will tell you that he was scared. And once you, I wrote it down. And once you see Cleet Jackson, you are going to know that it takes, you're going to know what it takes to scare Cleet Jackson. Why? Because he was big and black. He wasn't even that big. Because he was was black and bald. He wasn't even, he he not even a scary looking ass nigga. Uh-uh. What it takes, y'all racist. It's hell in Texas. Um, anything else? Oh, I have another one. You got one? Oh, is it my turn again? I can't remember. I do it, but if I did, I would have tried to get this um, court case. I would have tried to get this to be in a uh, another county, another state, if I could, because there was way too much going on in the media, and mm-hmm. the media really shaped her in a way that I think was unfair. What she did was, before y'all come for me, what she did was completely wrong, and she should be punished for it. As she has stated. But I do think that there have been times where I I have never been in that situation where there has been a dead body. But I have no personal situations where I thought so much on emotion and not on like logically thinking through a situation that it made it made the entire situation worse. Mm -hmm. And that is a very young and dumb decision. And. I feel like the way that she was portrayed in the media and she's a bigger girl, you know what I'm saying? They portrayed her as like this big, scary sex drug fiend. And you know, it was the early 2000s. They were say no to drugs. And I think that that was a very unfair. I don't think that they gave her the fair trial that she deserved. Um, And I don't think that that posed an unbiased jury because there was a lot into us who think about this stuff all the time. We thought about it for more than an hour before we could figure out what we thought our decisions might could have been. There was just so much to take into account. And the media, they definitely ran with this, like, before, uh, during and after. They, the newspapers ate it up, but afterwards, the story, it actually got turned into, it was not turned into, but it inspired, like, two different television series. Or an episode on a television series on 911 and on Law and Order, just a regular Law and Order. Um, and they've also made like three movies about it. I don't even know the name of one, and it's called um, Splat? St- stuck. It's called Stuck. Um, I did go and watch the Law and Order episode. They took an interesting twist on it. Okay. They talked about like, so in their story, this rich woman hit him and then had her car fixed and she acted like she didn't do it. Like she never fessed up to it. And then when she got on trial, it turns out that the man was dying before she hit him. Like he had got into a fight and he had a slow brain leak. So there was like, well, technically the car accident isn't his cause of death. And she was like, Oh, she got off like, basically scot-free maybe a couple of months for like a hit mm. and run and then so now they're like okay well we still have to try somebody with his murder so they try and look who beat him up and caused this slow blame breed since it didn't come from the car and it was another homeless man 
they was like, why did you beat him so badly? And he was like, because he wouldn't share his banana with me. And they was like, but it's his banana. And he was like, and I'm starving. And he wouldn't share it with me. And then we got into an altercation, and then we just had to fight. And it was like, why didn't you just walk away? He's like, because if I walk away, then everybody knows I'm soft, and I become a target. And so basically... His defense lawyer argued that because he's homeless, he's like him not sharing the banana. He had to fight and it was like um, a life or death situation for him. And we can't judge him off the same scale. And then the prosecution argued that if we say that he is not, if homeless people aren't humane enough to face the consequences of their actions when it comes to this, then that also means that we are saying homeless people are not humane enough to receive justice. Mm. And so he was like, so watch how you do it. And they ended up sending a homeless man to jail for prison. And then I was like, kind of made me mad. Cause I was like, damn, this rich-ass lady gets off scot-free and this homeless man. I mean, he's probably better off in jail because now you have a home and you don't have to worry about your next meal or where it's coming from. But it's crazy. Yeah. It's definitely but a big piece. It definitely, yeah, it is. And then in Stuck, the movie that you mentioned, a white woman played Shantae. Yeah. This Bitch. woman was so light. I was like, is she, is she? Is she black? No, she's not. She's a white No, I'm talking woman. about in Law and Order. Oh. I was like, not in Stuck. That white woman, they put that white woman in cornrows, helper. Oh, Jesus. I'm just so over Hollywood whitewashing. Like, helper, Jesus. Anyways, um... I ain't do it, but if I did, I'm sorry. We've got to jump back. Um, for Shantae, I ain't do it, but if I did. But when you said your apologies, you probably should have apologized to Cleet, too. I know that he's been, you know, holding down like he should have. But really, girl. He took on you, too much for you, to be honest. You, you owe him an apology. And I hope that you have given him one. I want her to do a lot of work in there. I think it um, it kind of goes back to the opening question, you know. Is responsibility enough to just say, yeah, I did it? Or do you need to accept the consequences of your actions? Um, when she's up for parole, she would have done, what, 25 years? She would have done half her sentence, yeah, 25 years. So Yeah, she would have done 25 years. I mean, I definitely think that's a decent amount of time. His son has accepted, you know, where it's at and is preaching forgiveness. And I think if you can show me that you've grown up and you can show me, I think the question is not, are you remorseful? But the question is now that you're sorry, are you willing to do better? Right. And I think throughout the course of this happening, she did not do better. She did not call more people and get in a better state of mind. She dug herself in a deeper, deeper hole. Just like to see what she's doing to try and change things around. So I'll consider her. But I don't have my answer just yet. You're going to have to um, present a case. I definitely think that you're going to have to present a case. But I do. It it was her choices afterwards. Like, mm-hmm. I just really wish I could have just given you vehicular homicide or, um, you know, intoxication, homicide, whatever. But, like, it was all the choices afterwards. It was all the involvement. It was. That's hard. And. I feel, but I do feel like twenty five years uh, with a nice case, I would consider her for parole mm-hmm. because no infractions on the inside. She had no priors. It, it's she really let this one night mess up her whole fucking life. 
Yeah, but it seemed like she was she was drinking a lot late, and I bet she won't be doing that shit no more. I mean, you know what I'm saying? And it's like, what are you going to let your wake-up call be? How far are you going to fall? Right. And that is the end of our show. You ready for some reviews? This one says, awesome. I was looking for a podcast to listen to on my commute. This podcast was a breath of fresh air. I love that these ladies are real and discuss so many different aspects of each case. Thank you. You're welcome. Um, this one says, like, chilling with friends. You ladies are, do a great job breaking down the stories. I can also tell the stories are well-researched, sprinkled with black girl magic. I crack up every time y'all get colorful. Keep up the awesome job. <laughs> I just try so hard. <laughs> That's the secret touch is that black girl magic. <laughs> All right, y'all. I'm tired. Um, so tired. I fell asleep while recording this just a little bit. If you want to keep up with us, you can follow us on Twitter at Sisters Who Kill. You can follow us on Instagram at Sisters Who Kill Pod. You can follow us on TikTok at Sisters Who Kill Podcast. You can email us for ad spaces at Sisters Who Kill Podcast at gmail.com and join the discussion group where we get down to the nitty gritty, honey. Got anything else, friend? Talk to us, we talk back. Bye.